if they lower it to 15, they can lower it 10. Whoa, so this does set it up for a sequel. And I yeah. do believe they'll be outnumbered. Yeah, exactly right. Is it me, but does that look like an American flag? I guess that's what it's supposed to imply. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we did it. Wild in the streets. Carl, what's taking the movie? Um, it was interesting because it's a snapshot of time and political movements around that time, like the draft and NOM and lowering the voting age, lowering the drinking age because of NOM. But um, I don't know. It was it was a curiosity. Yeah, it was a, a youth exploitation film with a political, you know, hypothesis, I guess. Yeah. Well, I was thumbing through my wallet just the other day, and well, I came to a certain spot, and I could have swore I heard someone say, hey, I'm your union card, and don't you forget about me. Now listen to this story, and just see if you don't agree. Hey, you 
may not know it, but I do a lot for you. I protect your benefits and all your wages too. I might even keep you from getting far. Praise the Lord, I'm a union card. Praise the Lord, I'm a union card. Could have been a face, I could have been a master charge. Don't worry about your money as long as I'm on guard. Just praise the Lord that I'm a union card. Could have been the Joker, could have been the old maid. Could have been the Rooker, could have been the Ace of Spades. Living in your wallet here, it sure is hard. But praise the Lord that I'm a union card. It could have been a master charge Don't worry about your money as long as I'm on guard Just praise the Lord that I'm a union card I'm a postal worker who delivers mail for you I'm a textile worker and I work on airplanes too
Good morning, Labor and Love fans. Welcome to the show. This is your host, the Bee. Singing the oppressor wherever he doesn't want to be stung. Amazing thing. Things are piling up one after the other. Let's let's start though with our mix to open the morning on this special abbreviated version of Labor and Love Radio. We'll be here with you till 11 o'clock, and then Mr. Scott Walker will come in and take that extra hour for his show, Flat Black Plastic. So we just heard Yariba Yariba. We heard from Chicanas. Okay. Meaning, soy Chicano. Today we're celebrating the birthday of one of my favorite Chicanas. My wife, Sylvia. Happy birthday, Sylvia. And many happy returns. We had La Bama Rebelde. And in between those two, well, first of all, we started out with Internacional, which is... Sometimes our uh, way we fade this show out, the international, the song of the international workers' movement, played beautifully by Carrie Mirage. After that, we had Kenny with "I'm a Union Card," right? "I'm a Union Card," and that, sometimes that makes all the difference. And the last one we had, as I said, was Las Cafeteras. And they were singing Soy Chicano, La Bama Rebelde. This is The B, and we're coming at you from Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street. And like I say, this is an abbreviated version of our show hear a lot of music, trying to get up some of our regular contributions, and uh, okay, Ellie Bly, celebrating the life of Okay, let's play some music and get on with the show. Last week we talked about Cesar Chavez. Here's Lalo Guerrero singing El Corrido de Cesar Chavez. de mi gente
That was Lalo Guerrero singing his homage to Cesar Chavez. Last week we talked about the life of Cesar Chavez at a point when he came into Giorgio strike in 1948. And this is where a young Cesar Chavez, just recently married, back from... Uh, the Navy, which he absolutely hated. <laughs> and um, there was an incident, as a matter of fact, where Chavez went to the movies in Delano with his uh, girlfriend Hel at the time, Helen, who he later married. And they went. he went to a movie in his uniform, his Navy uniform. They went and sat down in the wrong place, wrong place for them, <laughs> um, because Mexicanos, Chicanos weren't supposed to sit in that, that area. That was reserved for whites. So Chavez was arrested, uh, taken to the local police station where they didn't know what to do with him because in those days the law was mainly a matter of custom. There was no law, for example, that said, you know, brown people need to sit here and white people sit here and black people sit here. It was just a matter of custom that Chicanos would not go and sit in this white area. So he was taken to jail. He was arrested. And released because he hadn't broken any law. But it, I mean, all this time, you know, was serving to r radicalize Chavez. He was becoming more and more of a person who figured, well, I'm going to do more than just work all my life and support my family. 
have to do something to try and change the world. And this strike in 1948, the Giorgio strike, was again, the Giorgio at the time was the biggest producer of crops and food in the state, one of the biggest in the country. And their custom was to keep workers separated by ethnicity. So a white worker wouldn't get to talk to a Mexicano or a black worker or any of the other many groups of people who were imported. Hindus, lots and lots of different people, Filipinos. So Chavez uh, went to work, started raising a family. Um, over this period, sustained back in a back injury that bothered him all his life, and uh, started to think about how he could change things. As soon as he had an opportunity, uh, he met with a man named Fred Ross and and started working for an organization funded by the Quakers, Fellowship of Reconciliation. Get Out the Vote group worked in Oakland and other places to get out the vote, to get Latinos to vote, because he realized that that was the way to make permanent change. So along the way, he ran into a woman named Dolores Huerta, who was also working for uh, Fred Ross's organization. And her name was Dolores Huerta. She was from Stockton, born in New Mexico. Had a, you know, had a good life. She was a cheerleader in high school. I mean, she was not as impoverished as so many other families were at the time. And she decided to become a teacher working as a substitute teacher when she realized that here were these little kids, sick children of farm workers, coming to school. You know, some of them, like Cesar Chavez, had gone to more than 30 schools because in those days your family traveled around to pick crops that were ready to pick. So you couldn't stay at one school very long as soon as the crops were picked, the family moved to another place. Started at another school. And Chavez and other people, and people like Dolores Huerta, realized that this was just terrible. Children. And she said, I, could, I realized I could help people more. I organized them helping organize. So she and Cesar Chavez in 1962 founded something called the Farm Workers Organizing Committee, and which was not yet a union, but at this time he was going 
Chavez was driving all around the huge state of California, meeting with people in parks, in their homes, in churches, and talking about starting a farm workers' union. And it just so happened that another group, Farm Workers Organizing Committee, a Filipino farm workers, under the leadership of a man named Larry Itlion and Philip Veracruz. These people were veteran organizers. Itlion had been organizing workers since he arrived in the U.S. in the 1920s and 30s. Very tough, hard-bitten. And they'd had enough. They were um, picking grapes in Coachella area. And their wages had been cut. Um, they had demonstrated, uh, been dealt with harshly. In those days, the, the courts were always on the side of the growers which made sense because the growers were funding the county, right? Made sense that the two were united to stop farm workers from organizing at all. At any rate, Filipinos went out on strike, asked the uh, fledgling farm workers union mostly Mexicans, American, Chicanos, to join them. And they did. So there began the great boycott. Let us, the great boycott. And this was something that really captured the imagination of young people like myself, young at the time. And other people from all over, not just not just Latinos or blacks. This was a cause for young people. And all over the state, you would drive into a market and there would be pickets saying, please don't shop here. They don't they're selling grapes that were not picked by union workers. And he, just the image, Chavez was a master of journalistic theater. Just the image of farm workers, of downtrodden people, the shame of America. There was a documentary in 1959 by a renowned reporter uh, named Edward R. Murrow called Harvest of how farm workers were treated. There were camps for them, yeah, okay. Camps often had no running water, no toilet facilities. Disease was rampant. Often they had to sleep in houses, you know, they made out of cardboard. And um, they were victims of a racket 
And that racket was often victims of a racket that meant, okay, here's what you do. You're in Wheatland, 1913. You need people to pick your hops. You advertise for 3,000 workers. 3,000 workers show up, but you really only have place for half that many. So the rest of the people are competing for jobs. They came all this way for nothing. All that gas in their cars, all that, all that following the corrida, the, a route around the state where you picked here, picked there, picked something different here. And um, so they, they were demanding a minimum, you know, a fair wage. They were demanding better facilities. They were demanding things like, uh, how about outhouses out in the field? You're working like 100 degrees and you need an outhouse. Okay, you need water. In some cases, the growers would make some drink and take the water or some lemonade or whatever they called it. And... sell it to the people working in the fields. Imagine that. Anyway, it was a vicious, vicious situation. Um, the strike continued. Finally, uh, one of the growers, after a march, the great Chicano march to Sacramento in 1966, I'm where Chavez and 10,000, thousands of his followers marched from Delano to Sacramento to demand fair treatment for farm workers. And as they arrived there, one of the big growers signed a contract with the union. After all, grapes were rotting. Right? On the line, lines, people were getting killed. Getting killed. The mayor of Hollister. These things ha were happening all up and down. Finally, one grower signed. Celebration. Uh, what a day. Kind of a day of deliverance that showed what collective action And there were other campaigns after that, but what really happened was that after so many times, so many efforts throughout the 19th century and first half of the 20th century and beyond, farm workers had a union that would last. The work of the United Farm Workers was not over. A lot of the contracts that those people won were taken back, were lost again. There was a relatively friendly government, state government under Jerry Brown, that disappeared under people like Reagan and Dick Majin, those people who were closely allied to the 
it grows. Struggle goes on today. From time to time, you'll hear about a strawberry strike where they want one cent more per basket. Um, Anyway, so that's the story of Cesar Chavez and his union. I want to be quick to to assert that we have a tendency to glorify one person here in the United States. We want to know. Who's the one guy who, you know, we can look at and tell his story or her story and sum up the whole movement and make this person a special, special person? Well, the the whole point of Cesar Chavez and his movement and of King's movement and of several other movements is that it's the regular people who do the work who do the organizing, who provide the spirit. Leaders are thrown up for many different reasons. Someone like Chavez, as a matter of fact, did sort of sum up the Chicano experience, the farm worker, migrant farm worker experience. But he wasn't alone, and he certainly wasn't a superman. He was a regular guy. Here's John Frommer. We 
That was, of course, Zorba's Dance. I played it to honor the Independence Day of the Greek people, March 25th, 1821, when all over uh, Greece there was an uprising against King of the Turks occupied Greece for so many years since the famous year 1453. My grandfather would have a saying. Stand up and have a drink and he'd say, this year in Constantinople, Constantinople was the capital of the Byzantine Empire, the Greek Empire, as well as the Ottoman Empire to this day, Turkish Istanbul. Before that, we had Rivers of Babylon, about the oppressors, people who are chasing, the movie Chasing by Ivan, a rebel reggae in the cliffs. And before that, we had Brother John Fromer singing, We Do the Work. Fromer died a few years back. A big loss. Both a vocal and national. Right now, let's hear some labor history. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1989. That was the day that the United Mine Workers of America called for a strike against the Pittston Coal Company. Negotiation with the miners who worked in Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky had drug on for 14 months. The company had canceled health care for retired miners, along with miners with disabilities and widows, and also was not paying previously agreed to payments into a retiree benefit fund. 2,000 miners walked out of the mines and onto the picket lines. The company brought in replacement workers. The union was committed to peaceful protest, but the strike also drew a large number of other miners to the cause who supported the strike in wildcat actions. As many as 40,000 wildcat miners walked the lines in support of the strike. Angered over the use of scab labor, some of these picketers participated in actions like using jack rocks, a line of nails welded together to puncture the tires of company vehicles. In all, 4,000 people were arrested during the strike. The strike stretched on from days to weeks to months. At the time of the strike, current AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka was president of the United Mine Workers. When a newspaper reporter asked him how long the workers could hold out on the strike, he responded, one day longer than Pittston. Many friends from labor came to Appalachia to support the strike, including famed farm labor activist Cesar Chavez. A nearby campground became known as Camp Solidarity as a base for these friends. Women supporters formed a group called the Daughters of Mother Jones and staged support actions, including a 36-hour sit-in at the Pittston Coal headquarters. The strike ended in February of 1990 with the miners winning some, but not all, of their demands.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. And if you tried to make a telephone call that day, you might have been out of luck. During that time, telephone calls were connected by operators. 95% of the operators were women. The National Federation of Telephone Workers called for a strike against AT&T. The strike was one of the largest work actions by a majority female workforce in U.S. history. More than 300,000 women took off their headsets and walked off the job. Telephone service disruptions were widespread. According to the New York Times, the demands of the workers included a $12 per week raise. The union wanted to negotiate a nationwide wage scale. The workers also wanted a guaranteed pension minimum and more vacation time. The slogan for the strike was, the voice with a smile is gone for a while. A while turned out to be a month. As the strike wore on, newspapers decried interruptions to the telephone service. The day after the strike began, the New York Times editorial wondered, quote, whether essential public services should be subject to interruption by work stoppages growing out of labor disputes. In the end, the union did not win a national wage scale, and the wages continued to be settled at the local level. The next year, the National Federation of Telephone Workers had reorganized to form the Communication Workers of America as part of the CIO. Although the strike was largely not successful, it showed the potential power of women in the workforce. Brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1952. That was the day that President Harry S. Truman issued Executive Order 10340, nationalizing the U.S. steel industry. The president had hoped to stop a looming steel strike while the nation was embroiled in the Korean War. The president's order listed several reasons for the action, including, quote, American fighting men and the fighting men of other nations of the United Nations are now engaged in deadly combat with the forces of aggression in Korea. And forces of the United States are stationed elsewhere overseas for the purpose of participating in the defense of the Atlantic community against aggression. Another stated reason was that, quote, the weapons and other materials needed by our armed forces and by those joined with us in the defense of the free world are produced to a great extent in this country. And steel is an indispensable component of substantially all of such weapons and materials. He also listed, quote, steel is likewise indispensable to the carrying out of programs of the Atomic Energy Commission of vital importance to our defense efforts. Another reason Truman claimed was that continuing an uninterrupted supply of steel is also indispensable to the maintenance of the economy of the United States, upon which our military strength depends. After the announcement of the order, it only took some steel company owners 27 minutes to file for an emergency injunction to stop the seizure. They were not successful in getting their injunction, but the case went on to the Supreme Court. In May, the court ruled in a 6-3 decision that President Truman did not have the right to seize the mills. The day the court decision came down, the steel workers went out on strike, eventually winning pay raises.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. And if you tried to make a telephone call that day, you might have been out of luck. During that time, telephone calls were connected by operators. 95% of the operators were women. The National Federation of Telephone Workers called for a strike against AT&T. The strike was one of the largest work actions by a majority female workforce in U.S. history. More than 300,000 women took off. Before I say goodbye to you today, I want you to listen up to a local merchant. Como México no hay dos, y como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? A birria to die for? How about your favorite American dishes? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Van Ness, in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Okay, this is the B, and it's been my privilege to... Uh, Come into your home or your place, wherever you are, if you're listening. And on a, in a special abbreviated version of Labor and Love Radio, tune in next week. Right now I want to recite a poem. In Easter... Easter time, 1916, in Ireland, there was an uprising led by a group, led by groups of mostly intellectual people, people who were totally divided, devoted to the Irish cause. They seized the uh, post office and... raised the flag of rebellion, and it was put down by the British. Here's how it goes, by William Butler Yeats. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces, from counter or desk among gray 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head, a polite, meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite, meaningless words, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn, all changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument until her voice grew shrill, what voice more sweet than hers than when, young and beautiful, she rode to Harriers? 
Fat man had kept the school and rode on our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into the force. He might have won fame in the end. So sensitive his nature seemed, so wild sincere his thought. This other man I had dreamed, a drunken, vainglorious lout. He had done most bitter harm to some who are near to my heart. Could I number him in my song? He too resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too had been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. Terrible beauty of sin. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That was heaven's part, our part, to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. What is it then but nightfall? Oh, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep the faith with all that is done and said. We dream their dream enough to know they dreamed and are dead. What if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse. Jonathan McBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be wherever green is worn, all change changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Okay, that's it for this week. Keep that in mind. Evolutionary people are often motivated by great love. dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Laughter has value, and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Who is that live.com? comedy local shows on sale now everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing who wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy and those that, who's that? go to who is that live.com for upcoming shows
is called Acid and Fapping. Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube. That's L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's the name of our show. That's the name of our podcast. That's the name of our YouTube channel. We are on mutinyradio.fm right now. Who are we? Well, it's Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman and Carl. Hi, Carl. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on once again. Let's oh, watch a full-length movie. I nearly oh. forgot to put you on. I was... So excited to talk about mutinyradio.fm, where we stream first every Sunday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Make a habit of it. Go ahead and listen. Go to mutinyradio.fm. You'll find their feed. You can add it to your podcast player. You can just listen to it directly. And you can donate to their Patreon page or their Venmo page. Helps the station. Helps us. Check their uh, their website out. Uh, great place. Great to be on. Carl? We're going to watch a full-length movie on YouTube here on Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie Radio. on YouTube. Yeah, on Mutiny Radio. Mutiny Radio. What's the movie today? Today we are watching Children of the Corn, 1984. Children wow. of the Corn, 1984. Wow. A movie that scared me as a child. That's what you put in the YouTube search engine. Children of the Corn. And we like Film Freak. That's the channel we like. Film okay. Freak. You know, part of the premise of this show is that we see movies that I've read about no, never had a chance to see. I'm sorry. It's Movie Freak. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. It, the channel we like All is right. Movie Freak. Okay. Movie Freak is the channel. It is hosting the movie that we are watching today. We'd love for you to type in 
Children of the Corn, 1984, and look for the version hosted by Movie Freak. Find that link, click it, hit pause, and move it to zero, zero, zero. We're going to have a celebrity comedian countdown that Carl has spoken to. He's going to do the countdown for us, and when they say go, go ahead and hit go. All right, I'm really excited, Carl, man. We're going right to the source. Uh, as I said, this podcast is about movies I've read about. I never watched a Children of the Corn movie at all. But I've read about them, so I'm really excited to go to the source. Back where it all started. Here's Carl with his Celebrity Comedian Countdown. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Celebrity Comedian Countdown, this time with Mike Morse. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you did. Now, Mike, we've been knowing each other a while. We met at Scotty's, uh, Scotty's Pub and Comedy Cove. And I read the credits when I bring you up. And mm -hmm. one of them is the Jay Leno show. Uh, no, is the Tonight Show. Now, you wrote yes. for them during Jay Leno's time. Tell me I, about I, it. I wrote. It was a, it was a, a wonderful thing because I could do it from home. It was a freelance thing where, you know, they, they hire me and... I just every day, just uh, in the morning, sit at my little computer box and type out jokes, send it to them by, I think it was like one o'clock in the afternoon, whatever it's, you know, it's early for them. Right. And uh, then that night I would watch to see if they used the joke or not. And then, you know, <laughs> cha <-ching. laughs> yeah, And when they the, did, yeah, you'd get a charge out of it. Yeah, but then you get mad. You get mad if they don't use like a joke that you think is great. You're like, oh. <laughs> and you hear one that like they used that was the kind of sucked. You know, that was in the same vein. And uh, and, and worse is is yeah, and and you have this joke and you work on you craft it perfectly. You're you know working your 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 off on it and uh and he'll go hey you know here's the thing is there, uh there's a um, and he'll, he'll stumble over it and he's like you screwed it up jay and i'm yelling at the tell i'm yelling at jay leno through my television right because he, he screwed up the joke. Ah. and then he blames him man that wasn't very funny well you screwed it up jay okay this <laughs> i'm having a dialogue with, uh, with tv jay leno so you've done a lot of writing for big time uh shows and I, you wrote a lot for comedy central the roasts uh tell me about writing for them i did well i started because i had uh, uh i worked for lisa lampanelli for uh, for a long time and and wrote her uh, helped write her her roast uh sets for right. comedy central when she was on and then i did for some other people on there too so it was always you know a, a unofficial uh, uh capacity it was like people would Call me, say I'm going to be on this uh, oh, roast. Yeah. I need jokes, and and again, I'm sitting at my little computer box in my underwear, writing and <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, watching it as it happens. So, uh, yeah, that so it's cool. a great it's, visual. It's, yeah, the best is probably the the and the one you know usually you get used. And a lot of times, there's guys I know, you know, that I've come up through the ranks with. They've gone farther up the ranks, but uh, <laughs> uh, but the best was for the. Um, it was the Alec Baldwin roast, and I got to write uh -huh. some jokes for uh, for De Niro. And uh, so Robert De Niro was doing my jokes, and that, that was like, that's cool, man. <laughs> that's yeah. a charge. And, and yeah, and he's like, you know, this thing, that's him doing the jokes. And, he, and he, you know, you're like, and, and, and he's nailing them. And I'm like, yes, you're doing better than Leno. Yes. <laughs> now, so, not yeah, so only roasts for Lisa Lampanelli, but you did other, you did a lot of writing for her. You opened for her. Tell me about that mm -hmm. relationship. I know she's retired now. 
Yes, uh, she uh, she's not doing comedy any longer, um, but it was it was great, man. We had a great relationship, working relationship, and uh, I just uh, started writing roast jokes for her, and uh, she needed an opener, uh, and so for I think it was seven or eight years, I was wow. on the road with her, just traveling around, and it was great. I mean, like yeah. that's not the life. You 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 know, you fly out to Chicago, you do a beautiful theater, you stay in a nice hotel. And, uh, you know, everything is taken care of. You get the, you know, they're sending you to the uh, back and forth from the airport. And, uh, and I mean, it was, it was like being in show business there. For yeah. A while, so, and now here I am. Comedians <laughs> not in cars talking to Carl. So. That's right. It's small time. Welcome. <laughs> Plenty of room in the middle. Plenty of room in the middle. <laughs> so, but that was great. It was great. She was a great person to work for. Yeah. Um, and it was when she was at the top of her game there and, uh, you know, it was crazy. It was. It was. Uh, uh, I, I. I do miss it occasionally. Now we just did a show together, and you brought all of the stuff for Puppets in Love, but you didn't yes. perform it. Now, now you know I love more than you, Puppets in Love. Why don't mm -hmm. you tell everyone, you know, how you? Okay, just he he plays a song. Uh, he he plays a medley of songs and goes through a a relationship. Genesis, the hard times, the breakup, and the reuniting. How did you come up with this idea? And, you know, you've got the puppets, you know. Right. Well, um, <clears throat> how it started was I, I, I write for uh, – one of the people I write for is a ventriloquist, you know, and uh, you know, pretty well-known, and uh, he was looking for some new bits. When and I, I thought start? of this bit about two puppets who are having a relationship, you know, meet – have a relationship, have problems, and so I'm writing it for his puppets. And as I'm doing, and it kind of, it was one of those where, when it comes to you really fast, and you say so you know it's good, and uh, there's like so I, I just make a list of these like 50 songs and yeah. edit them all together. And as I'm doing it, I'm like, well, you know, at the time I was doing a bit with a Cabbage Patch uh, doll that I had taken the head off, and it was the and so I have the body, and it was just. Uh, uh, the first villain, uh, ventriloquist dummy for the hearing impaired, and I would just do, uh -huh. you know. and so, and so I had head. that, so I had that, and I'm like, well, you know what? If I get another one, and then put a little eyes on them so they have faces, I can do it myself because this is really funny. So I had already told. Bill, you're giving me power.
in the year 1960, 50 years ago, specifically the Saturday before Easter. I was in my last year in seminary at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, but I was also pastoring four churches that I had just gone to two, year, uh, two months before in January. And I was, on that Saturday, I was agonizing to finish my sermon that I had worked on all week long, trying to get it down to, to the perfection that, uh, that Christian preachers try to do on Easter. I had put in some of my own uh, experiences and my reflections. I had also dropped in some wonderful quotations from the uh, theologians of the day. And I was ready to preach that day, but I had to wait another day. Now that Saturday in the evening, uh, some of the, uh, the uh, 14 of the, the kids from the four churches that I was serving, uh, Sadler, Gordonsville, Gunter, and Tioga, uh, they came over to a special time that would prepare them for Easter. At about at nine o'clock, they all left, and uh, one guy was left. His friend had left him behind and had had forgotten him. And Brian asked me if I could take him home uh, to Tioga, and I said, sure. And I told my wife that uh, where I was going and what I was doing, and so Brian and I jumped into my station wagon and we headed off. But for me, this was virgin territory, uncharted. I had driven these roads in the last two months during the day, on, uh, on the, the major thoroughfares, but I had not traveled those country roads in the dark. I got Brian to his home, dropped him, and headed back. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and I was needing to get home and get to bed so I could pre be prepared for the, the four messages uh, the next morning. And then it happened. Yeah, I can slow it down and pause it. I got it all in this book. I had forgotten to fill up my gas tank that day. My car started to sputter and spit, and then it died. What do I do? I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. I can't see anything. And so I wondered, where do I go? Who can I find? I, there, were, there was no house around. There were no gas stations around. And so I apprehensively, but knowingly, got out of my car, locked it up, and started going someplace, not knowing where I was going or when I was going to get there and what I would find when I got there. So. I 
I've walked almost two hours, or at least it seemed two hours, but actually I found out when I got there uh, to the place, I've only been gone 35 minutes, <laughs> but I saw in the distance a gleaming light, and like a moth being drawn to the flame, I, I went to that glow, and as I neared it, I heard twanging, blaring music, and I found myself at a country roadhouse, surrounded by pickup trucks and motorcycles. Now, I had never been in one of these, and I didn't know what to expect. Uh, but I knew that I had to have somebody try to help me, and I wondered if I would find anybody like that here. So I apprehensively went into the, the roadhouse, and over on the side there was a little room, and there were three guys in there playing pool. And so I thought, well, maybe they could help me, or at least they could tell someone who could help me. So I went in there, and just as I walked in, one guy came up to me and he said, hey, I'm Eric, and I want, do you want to play pool? Uh, I thought maybe they thought I could be hustled because I had, well, I looked like I had money. But anyhow, I said, uh, well, I used to play pool when I was in high school. And then I thought to myself, and I had done pretty well, but I hadn't played for six years. He said, well, would you break on a game of, uh, of stripes and solids? And I said, sure. So I racked them up, went to the, get the pew stick, chalked it up, put talc on my hands, and stroked and cracked the rack. M meaning they broke. One ball went in. I did it again. Two balls had gone in. Three balls went in, and by now I realized that I had amazingly gotten back my youthful talent of pool. Well, to make a long story short, I put in four more balls. There was only one ball left, the eight ball. This is the, the piece de, de resistance in, in, in eight ball. I called it for the left corner pocket. I stroked, hit, and it went in. And immediately, Eric said, oh, we've got a pool shark in our midst. He was, he was kinder than another guy. He said, okay, are you a pool hustler in the neighborhood? Well, I thought to myself, what do I say? And, and Eric said, okay, come and sit down. And we sat down and a couple of other guys joined us at the table and he said, I want you to tell us why you are in our neighborhood. Oh, man, what did I say to these guys? I said, okay, I'm the new preacher at the Tioga Methodist Church. 
right back to Sadler, which was about 30 miles away. I ran out of gas. I've got to get home because I'm preaching at four churches in the morning and because it's Easter. Roy said, what's Easter? Two of the guys chided Roy because of what he had said, but he said, honestly, I've never been to church before, and I want to know the story about Easter. So I thought to myself, what do I tell Roy? Do I give him the sermon that I had prepared and that was filled with illustrations from Paul Tillich's The New Being? Or do I try to find new ways to tell the story, the old, old story, to the new ears of Roy? So I thought for a moment, and then I swallowed and started in. Now, there was this guy named Jesus, and he gathered around him 12 guys of his friends, and they were his gang, and they, they roamed the countryside together, and they, they talked about peace and justice and love and God, and they did great things. But the authorities wanted to get him, and so they tried to find ways of either capturing him or killing him. Well, I told a little bit more of the story until I came down to the end, and I said, one night, one of the gang ratted on him to the authorities. And so they caught Jesus, and the next day they hanged him on a tree, and they killed him. Two days later, they went, uh, the, the, the some of the gang went to try to find him in the tomb where they had laid him, and he wasn't there. And they searched around and asked around, and finally someone said, God has raised Jesus from the dead and has given him new life. Now, Roy, that's the story of Jesus, and that's the story of Easter. And Roy blurted out, man, that's an awesome story. And I said, you know, I believe in an awesome God. After a brief period of, of silence, Eric seemed to be the leader, and he got up and he said, let's go get the shark some gas. a new name, the shark. And I had a bunch of new guys as my friends. Well, anyhow, we went outside and they siphoned some gas from some place. I don't know where. They put it in the can. Eric gave me the can and said, hey, sit on the back with me. And so I got on the motorcycle with him, and this was another new first. I'd never been on a motorcycle before. So we traveled three miles down the dusty road. I got off, poured the 
gas in the can, gave the can back to Eric, and they took off without saying a word. And I was sorry to see my new friends go. Well, I finally got home about 12.30, and my wife was frantic because she didn't know what had happened to me. You see, that was B.C., before cell phones. And, and she said, why don't you come to bed? And I said, I can't come to bed. I, I had a great experience tonight. I, I got stranded. I got friends. I played pool. I told the story of, of, of Easter to new people. I, I have got to rewrite my sermon because the, the intellectual sur, uh, sermon that I have prepared for my people tomorrow is not their story. And so she went up to bed and I hurriedly wrote down the new message that had come to me as I was driving back on that awesome travel from the roadhouse. I went to bed, I felt great and spent and excited. This was going to be a chance to tell the story of the faith that had meant so much to me and had called me into ministry. So I woke up the next morning, I had headed off to the first three churches on the circuit, and each, after each um, church, I felt more confident and more expectant. And, and I realized that if at all possible, I would never preach sermons the old way. So I got to Tioga at one o'clock. And I walked in and there the people were, 80 wonderful people dressed in their finery. As we were beginning to sing the last hymn, or the first hymn, what did I hear outside but a roar of motorcycles coming up. And in walked seven guys dressed in their black leather jackets and their black leather pants, their uniform that they had on last night. And the usher looked at me and wondered what he was supposed to stay. And on his own, he said, could I help you? And Eric, in his great also voice said, hey, we're here to hear the shark tell the story of Easter.
Miami FLA Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey Take a walk on the wild side Blue eyes, 
Voices, voices, like an insane. 